Welcome to At Home and Abroad with Harrison Walker. Join us each week as we follow our curiosity, diving deep into the familiar and the foreign. Reach beyond your front door as we uncover new perspectives, explore intriguing ideas, and have real conversations with the best guests. Ready for something different? Let's get started. Trauma coach Ronya Fraser knows firsthand what it means to succumb to the power and influence of a narcissist. Ronya had been living in California. She had developed a very successful career in the financial industry and even owned her own home. By all measures, she was doing very well. Then a friend introduced her to a man who ultimately manipulated her and nearly destroyed everything that she had worked so hard for. Just two days after meeting this man, Ronya claims that he was already her everything. He was kind, gentle, and attentive to her. She said that he seemed to completely get what she was all about. He was very charming, showering her with compliments. She felt seen, heard, valued, appreciated, validated, and genuinely loved. They discovered that they had a lot in common, including their less-than-ideal childhoods, and she claims having this shared background made her want to save him with all this love she had to give. This shine on this initial love, though, wore off rapidly. Her new partner became a monster, cold, distant, and cruel. His behavior and the way he spoke to her completely changed. He would disappear for several days without any communication, and even worse, he made sure that Ronya was aware that she wasn't the only woman in his life. He even went so far as to say that this other woman deserved his attention more. They fought often, but when they weren't arguing, her partner would become cold and uncommunicative, increasing her insecurity and anxiety. When they were fighting, he would often change his arguments midstream, gaslighting her for events and behaviors which she questioned took place at all. Eventually, she no longer knew what the truth was. She was feeling worthless and wondered if in fact she was losing her mind. She was beginning to believe the picture of her that he so viciously created. He would use everything that he had learned about her against her. Sadly, she reflected that she unknowingly gave him the ammunition he needed to destroy her. Despite this terrible downward spiral, she still believed that she loved him and could heal the relationship. Just the thought of walking away from the relationship filled her with overwhelming anxiety, so she would repeatedly apologize and beg him to stay. But finally, it all became too much. She found the strength to leave. She cut off all communication with her narcissistic partner and all those associated with him. She moved and essentially went into hiding for two years. Today, she is a survivor. She is a trauma coach and clinical hypnotherapist. She supports abuse survivors on their journey to escape to recovery from the trauma of their abuse. She is now a leading expert in narcissistic abuse. Well, I'm willing to bet that this shocking story is more common than one might think. I'm afraid you're right. It's abuse, plain and simple. Yeah, but frankly, haven't many of us met someone who exhibits similar narcissistic tendencies or even worse, victims of a similar relationship? I certainly have. Yeah, I have as well. And it can be a really difficult snare to escape. Unfortunately so. And often leaving the relationship is just the first step in a long road to recovery. Yep. Ronya Fraser describes this relationship with a narcissist. She says, It consists of calculated manipulation, the tactical erosion of identity, and systematic brainwashing, resulting in complex PTSD. And as the trauma caused occurs on such a deep level, the healing needs to happen on a similarly deep level too. The narcissist can certainly leave a tremendous amount of emotional destruction in their wake. They sure can. 
We have the good fortune of speaking today to a leading expert to help us unravel this complicated topic of narcissism. Dr. Craig Malkin is a lecturer in psychology for the Harvard Medical School and licensed psychologist with over two decades of experience in helping couples, individuals, and families. Dr. Malkin is the author of the internationally acclaimed book, Rethinking Narcissism, The Secret to Recognizing and Coping with Narcissists. Welcome to At Home and Abroad, Dr. Malkin. Thank you for having me. First of all, let's just say narcissism, it really is a bit of a buzzword these days. People throw it around left, right, and center, though it's probably not always correctly used. So could you just start us off with a definition in a nutshell of what narcissism might be? Absolutely. It's most of the time not correctly used. And for that reason, I like to start with what narcissism isn't. Okay. Uh, Because when most of people think of the word narcissism or narcissist, they picture a vain, preening, primping, boastful braggart, a reality TV types, and somebody very extroverted, charismatic. The reality is that that's really a caricature Mm -hmm. of what narcissism is. And if we get too focused on it, we miss signs of trouble that have nothing to do with, say, vanity or, or greed. Um, because a lot of people who are extremely narcissistic can be extremely quiet. They can be shy, self-doubting, self-critical. And so this notion that we usually carry around really doesn't have anything to do with the core of narcissism. I think the best way to understand all narcissism, not just the one type, is based on research. And really, I would say based on the vast majority of writings, theoretical writings, I think the best way to think of it as the drive to feel special, exceptional, or unique compared to the other nearly 8 billion people on the planet. Uh, A pervasive, universal human trait that exists to some extent in all of us to greater or lesser degrees. Um, And that's really the best way to understand narcissism, because if you understand it that way, then you can capture all the different forms and uh, other aspects uh, that are included in discussions of narcissism, like uh, notions of health, the idea of healthy narcissism or adaptive narcissism. So, we can feel special by virtue of believing that we're the smartest person on the planet or the most attractive. This is the narcissist we all know and loathe. Right. (laughs) That that caricature Right, but we can also feel special because we agree with statements, and this is from self-report. There's the actual tests. If you look at something called uh, vulnerable narcissism or covert narcissism, I also just call it introverted narcissism. They do not feel special by virtue of positive qualities at all. Okay. They feel special by virtue of their suffering. Oh, isn't that interesting? Their negative qualities. Yeah. I'm the I'm the most misunderstood person in the room. I'm an undiscovered genius. I've been passed over the most. I'm the most aggrieved. And so they agree with statements and self-report like I'm more temperamentally sensitive than most people. Oh and gosh. right? And few mm-hmm. people understand my problems. Yeah. That's still narcissism. Yeah, I've never ever looked at it that way. And we've all run across people just like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, so as soon as you start looking at it it, it, with this core feature of a drive to feel special, exceptional, unique, now you can talk about people who feel special in these different ways. You have the different types of narcissism. 
Mm-hmm. You can talk about people who are so driven to feel special, exceptional, or unique. They're disordered, disordered narcissism, pathological narcissism, or narcissistic personality disorder. But then you can also include this understanding that people who feel a little special actually do well in the world. And, and the vast majority of happy, healthy people don't feel average, at least privately. They feel exceptional, unique in some way, sometimes positive, sometimes, you know, maybe I, I do have more difficulty than other people. And people who feel that way, who, who show a little bit of that, agree and self-support with, with statements like, obstacles rarely slow me down. Right. Or I like to give and receive in relationships. I like to strive as long as it doesn't get in the way of my relationships, things like that. So mm-hmm. this is that notion of a little bit special actually is helpful to us. And so that's, I think, the best way to understand what it is. So it's not really black and white. It's nuanced. And you, you have a model that is based on a spectrum from narcissism to what do you call the other end of the spectrum? Echoism. Echoism. Yeah. And it's basically a spectrum of self-importance. That's exactly right, yeah. Okay. So how did you develop this theory? I, I was very interested in presenting a spectrum in, in a book and some understanding of a spectrum model of narcissism. Really started getting back into research and writing around 2013 at that time. Uh, as much as I was into the idea of telling people how this works and what the spectrum is, I kept running into models of a spectrum I wasn't particularly keen on because they left out an awful lot. So back then, even though there were all these discussions about different types of narcissism that nobody seemed to be able to fit together on a spectrum, the idea of health and healthy narcissism, as soon as people started presenting a spectrum, even in in research, it was basically from bad to worse. So the idea was... Um, you start at low narcissism, which is not great, and then you go all up to extreme narcissism where we find pathology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, the, and the problem is we already knew from the research that people who scored very low on narcissism measures were not happy. They were not healthy. Zero narcissism was not a good thing. So this was already, was already a problem with, with, with the spectrum. Mm-hmm. So I, in trying to understand this and, and bring things together the way we just started with, like with a, a definition of narcissism that captures everything, I found my way to some research on self-importance that mm-hmm. in the research is called self-enhancement. Okay. And there's a vast body of research on self-enhancement. And as soon as I started looking at it, lots of things became clear. Because everybody talked about narcissistic self-enhancement, who is writing and doing research in this area. And that's exactly what it sounds like. It's when somebody is extremely narcissistic, they feel extremely special, exceptionally unique. But then there was also this idea of uh, moderate self-enhancement. This is what we referred to earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, you think of self-enhancement as another way of thinking about narcissism. This is where it all started to come together. Because self-enhancement is essentially... It's not a realistic view of self. It's a slightly glorified view. Yes, overly positive. Right, right. Right. And it turns out that people have this, and this is what we determined in our research overlaps with these uh, discrete defined notions of, say, healthy narcissism. They're people who moderately self enhance. Yeah. And it turns out to be not such a bad thing. Exactly. Who yeah. feel a little special. And then you can also, as a result of this, talk about people who don't self-enhance at all. 
Mm-hmm. And this this is what gets into this the opposite end of the spectrum, echoism, right? right? So people who don't self enhance at all are anxious. They're depressed. Yeah. And I started writing about echoism. Really, it was around 2014 as I was developing these ideas too. There wasn't much of a discussion of this kind, but to understand echoism which is at the opposite end of that spectrum, right? We have people who don't self-enhance, people who moderately self-enhance healthy narcissism, people who addictively self-enhance on the far right. Mm-hmm. Echoists, like their namesake, Echo, mm-hmm. tend to echo the needs and feelings of others. That's one classic presentation. Echo is a figure who was left out of discussions of narcissism. Uh, Narcissus, of course, is the main Greek youth who fell in love with his reflection, Mm-hmm. Echo is the is the nymph who was cursed to repeat back the last few words she heard, and like Echo, uh, echoists tend to fall into relationships with extremely narcissistic friends and partners. All right, so uh, echoism, the defining characteristic of these people who don't self enhance, is uh, a fear of seeming narcissistic in any way. Of seeming narcissistic in any way, really. So they agree with statements like, "I don't want to become a burden." When people ask me my preferences, I'm often at a loss. I'm afraid of special attention. Here, it's like exactly the opposite. They live life by the rule, the less room I take up, the better. Yeah. And so this is one one of the reasons where this dynamic where people who struggle with this adaptation or trait of echoism where they fail to self-enhance are drawn into relationships with narcissistic people. They can take over. Yeah. They can make all the decisions. They can tell you exactly what you should be thinking, doing, feeling about yourself. Right. And, you know, and if you're afraid of special attention, someone who takes up all the room is uh, as unpleasant as it is, is also kind of a relief. Yeah. You don't have to have that burden of worrying about it. I actually listened to your book and it was a completely unique perspective that I had never heard on narcissism and it made so much sense. And of course you have a self-evaluation as a part of it. And it was a really interesting exercise because you look at your own self. I mean, I don't think any even pathological narcissist would look at themselves as a narcissist, but you look at yourself and you start having a different perspective on, on how you know, how you place self-importance. It turns out that it depends on the kind of narcissism. This is where the different types comes in and becomes important. So there are extroverted or outgoing narcissists who are quite happy to admit to being narcissists. They're captured well in a scale called the sins. I love that. Oh my sin- gosh. Could <laughs> right? that be any more perfect? That's hilarious. The single item narcissism scale, which is exactly what it sounds like. You present this person with a statement, self-report, to what degree do you agree with the following statement? I am a narcissist on a scale of one to seven. And then they describe what a narcissist, the egotistical self-involved. And a good percentage of these more charismatic, outgoing narcissists, the extroverted narcissists, also called overt narcissists, will say, yeah, I'm a narcissist (laughs) because, because they valorize the trait. Yes. Yes, exactly. That is a very, very high value trait in themselves. They love that about themselves. Why wouldn't I be? Yeah, I'm egotistical, of course. (laughs) Funny. Some of us ignore or just don't register the red flags or warning signs that someone may be on the unhealthy narcissist side. 
once people are in a relationship, how do they know when to leave? And is there any point in staying? Sometimes, yes. But I always, in answering that question, start with what I call the three stop signs. Okay. Uh, which are essentially indicators, signs. They're really information that tell you you need help leaving the relationship if you're having trouble doing it. And that, and, the, and one of the three stop signs I'll start with is abuse. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what the source of abuse is or what's driving it in, in the abuser, you know, what's driving them to abuse. But if you're in a relationship where somebody is emotionally, physically, sexually, financially abusive, gaslights, whatever is causing it, it's 100% the responsibility of the abuser to end abuse. There is nothing we can do about it if we're in a relationship with an abuser. They have to take accountability and start to change. And this is why there's programs out there like Emerge, which are for abusers who want to change. They throw themselves into this very immersive program that's all geared towards getting them to end abusive behavior. So that's a stop sign. Uh, You know, I always tell people they don't even consider working it out until the abuse has stopped. Mm-hmm. And the second stop sign is psychopathy. This is really important because it so often gets conflated with narcissism. Narcissism is the drive to feel special, exceptional, or unique, or you can think of it as entitled self-enhancement. Some people think of it that way at the extreme. Psychopathy is a pattern of remorseless lies and manipulation, uh, a lack of conscience, might even be a wired-in lack of empathy. That's what psychopathy is. So this is somebody who, if you catch them in a lie, like I saw that you were cheating, I saw it on your phone, they they look at you without flinching. And maybe they lie some more, then betray no emotion. This is these are signs of psychopathy and they depart from narcissism. It's not going to get better because this is often somebody who lacks the equipment in order to foster healthy relationships. The best they can do is be high functioning in manipulating relationships. And the third stop sign is denial. If somebody isn't willing to acknowledge even the smallest problem, the relationship is not going to change. So if those three stop signs are making any appearance in a relationship, whether someone's narcissistic or not, generally counsel people not to bother at all. So if you find yourself in a relationship with someone who's not overtly abusive or don't have any of these stop signs, then it might be worth seeing if you can work things out. Right. However, what happens if you're with somebody and they're on one end of the spectrum and the other person's on the other end of the spectrum? Do you think get caught in this codependent sort of situation then often, do you find? Absolutely. So so this is that trap of if somebody's extremely echoistic, right. they're not even in touch with their needs and feelings in any clear way. They've often learned to set them aside. Mm-hmm. Remember, the less room I take up, the better. So make myself smaller. That means excluding important core f- needs and feelings. Mm-hmm. So this gets to that thing, what do you do if you're in a relationship, exactly. even if you're not struggling with echoism in any way? I always teach people empathy prompts. And empathy prompts are a way of engaging somebody in a difficult interaction and you're having difficulty in a relationship, disconnection, or things aren't going well that draw on attachment research and something called communal activation, which is from narcissism research. But briefly, communal activation, it turns out if somebody is blocked narcissistically, if they have narcissistic defenses, there is a latent capacity for empathy, compassion, connection. And it turns out if you remind them of relationships in different ways, 
talk, immerse them in language. We are us, collectivist language, mm-hmm. um, and give these little nudges towards a more relational way of acting. It kind of lights up that blocked area of the brain. Empathy prompts do that based on the attachment research. So an example of an empathy prompt would be, say, if you've got a super critical mother right, and you're wanting to talk to her about it, and she's not overtly abusive, right? She's not physically abusive. Again, she's this, this presentation of narcissism where people are sort of aloof and unempathic and insensitive mm-hmm. or callous. So with an empathy prompt, you might say to your critical mother, you know, you're my mom and you're one of the most important people in my life, if not the most important right now, which is why it's devastating to me. It makes me feel like nothing when I hear you make dismissive comments or, or or minimize what I'm going through. It just hurts me to my core. So an empathy prompt has two parts, emphasizing the importance of the relationship, which is part of communal activation, and then and speaking from a more vulnerable place. When most of us are feeling disconnected in a relationship, we tend to either get angry and critical ourselves or withdraw, neither of which is clear about our needs and feelings. And the nice thing about an empathy prompt is it can invite empathy if the person's capable of it. But even if it doesn't, it helps you move out of echoism. There is a benefit to it regardless. Regardless. That's why I teach this, because this helps people become clear about their own needs and feelings, not not resort to distancing defenses or, or even critical defenses themselves, angry defenses when they're trying to fix something. In a, in a relationship. And that's what you want to be able to do in a healthy relationship. So, might as well practice it. If you get a lousy response, right? We can't change the re- how it's received. If the person isn't capable, they're not. Right. That's all the information you need. Yeah, right. It's not going to work. Yeah. If you can't have a conversation like that, it can't get better. Yeah. It's narcissism. And I think I may know the answer to this. Is it passed down to the next generation? Do you learn what you live? I think there's always going to be a biological or genetic component, a predisposition. There's research that shows that. There's genetic research that shows it on heritability of narcissism. Um, and it's clear that there's temperamental tendencies that start very early on, as early as preschool, where you can see people, little little preschoolers who are always wanting to be the center of attention. Yeah. Uh, who are melodramatic, who are bullying. They turn out to be more narcissistic later in life. Unless they have a kind of parenting that fosters attachment security. Okay. So there's actual research studies that show you start with that kind of genetic tendency. But if the parents, this can be, you know, this is a difficult temperament, mm-hmm. a kid like this. And so this is one of those examples where it doesn't necessarily mean that someone had narcissistic parenting, that they turn out this way. It could be somebody who's echoistic, who, do, who's, who doesn't know what to do with this kid. And as a result of that, they can't find ways to stay connected to them and set limits on their bad behavior mm-hmm. at the same time. And then the kid starts to grow up more narcissistic. So not everyone has the ability to walk away from a damaging relationship with a narcissist. How can you protect yourselves in these relationships? You know, if you can't walk away, if you have to maintain that relationship with that narcissist. This is where I just want to touch on again, uh, abuse, because a lot of times you might 
run into people. I do in helping many people because I help not only people with narcissistic personality disorder, but partners, exes, people in relationships are trying to figure this out. And one of the first things I share with them again is if you're seeing signs of abuse, it's really about limiting contact. Mm -hmm. There's this idea of gray rocking, right? This is where you don't give an emotional response because it's too engaging. Right. Um, it, it, it's really about limiting interaction always with, with abuse. Again, there's nothing that we more that we can do with that. But again, if it's more obnoxiousness, lack of collaboration, lack of connection, then th then there are some things you can do, say, in co-parenting. Right. But we've moved away. We've given up on empathy prompts, which, by the way, I only recommend for a few weeks. Okay. okay that's good to I know. I try to make it very clear in the book. I'm not going to have somebody... First of all, it's not our job to change anyone. And that's why my emphasis is on helping people speak in ways that's just good for them. Mm -hmm. It's good to be in touch with our needs and feelings. It's good to be really clear about what we're asking for and the impact other people are having on us that, that's hurtful. But we've moved away from that if you're in one of these relationships where you have continued contact. And now we're on to management. How do you survive or manage this relationship? And one of the easiest things that I teach is something I call a connection contract. Right? This is where you, you lay out clearly what are the terms that you expect in order to have a continued interaction even be possible. So, say in co-parenting, it might be something like, look, I want to talk to you about Timmy tomorrow. I think we can put our heads together and figure out what to do with school. But if I hear name calling, mm -hmm. you know, if you call me fat, mm -hmm. all right, if you start dismissing everything I say, that'll tell me that you're not in a place to have the conversation and we'll have to try again later. Right? It's relying on a principle in psychology called reactance. Nobody likes to be predicted. Nobody likes to be told what's going to happen that, that they're going to do. So, so even somebody who's narcissistic, it exerts this a little bit of pressure to not be so predictable. And you're also setting a limit up front. You want to have this conversation? There are deal breakers here. There's one way. There's some other ways too, but that's that's one of the primary ways I suggest. So let's talk about social media because it's a big topic. It's a perfect medium for the narcissist, but it can have a negative influence on all of us. Can you offer some guidance on how to engage with social media in a healthy way? I can offer very clear guidance because there's really good research on this at, at this point. The research was a bit of a mess when I was writing the book because social media was fairly new. Right. And so there were all these contradictory claims. One, one study or one author would suggest, well, look at the research. Social media depresses all of us. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really not a good thing. And we really need to be aware of it. And then another Another study would say, oh, I, you know, social media is making narcissists of, a, 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 of us all. We're all too full of ourselves. <laughs> it's helping us be full of ourselves and feeling too good about ourselves. <laughs> and it, my conclusion look, after looking at the research has not changed since then, even with the new research, which is that it's a, asking if social media is harmful or in, inherently harmful. It's a bit like assuming that living in rural Michigan might cause cancer. Right. It, it obviously depends what you're doing there. Yeah, and yeah. what we've learned uh, is that there are healthy ways to interact with social media. There's a classic, amazing study on this involving a state measure of narcissism. So, narcissism can be measured as a fixed thing, a character trait, 
Mm-hmm. But it can also be measured as something that changes over time, hence the idea of a spectrum being important. So the researchers got a bunch of college students together. That's usually how this research is done. <laughs> They're the captive audience. They, they, they measured all of these groups on narcissism before they had them do anything. Okay. And one group they had go through mapping a course on their college campus through Google Earth for about 20 minutes. Another group, they had uh, spending 20 minutes working on MySpace. I don't know if anybody even knows what MySpace is anymore. MySpace was a social media site that was notoriously exhibitionistic. Yeah. And people would just put up, post up semi-nudes and glam pics. At, so that was MySpace. They had some students do that. Then they had some students on Facebook. Again, 20 minutes. And they compared them. Well, not surprisingly, the Google Earth people, nothing really happened to their narcissism score. It more or less stayed the way it was. The MySpace people increased in narcissism after 20 minutes. <laughs> surprise, surprise. They more strongly endorsed statements like, I like to look at myself in the mirror and everyone laughs at my jokes. Or, like uh, appallingly grandiose endorsements. <laughs> The bad stuff went up. Remember, there's good stuff. Yeah, good good yeah. stuff is like, I'm a natural born leader. Yeah. I like to be in positions of authority. Those things are not correlated with anything negative. In fact, it's only positive. So they only went up on bad stuff. Facebook, the people on Facebook, you got to remember at the time, Facebook, all you could do at the time in the early 2000s was uh, connect with friends, reconnect, you know, share some fun stories and, and talk to people. Photos. Yeah, some photos. That, that, that was it. And what they found was that not only did, did people's narcissism scores not go up when they were on Facebook, their self-esteem did. And this gets back to this I- the idea of self-enhancement. Remember, self-enhancement isn't realistic. Mm-hmm. But there's a, there is a realistic form of self-evaluation. And that's what self-esteem is. It's just where your realistic evaluation of yourself is positive. Mm-hmm. All right. It's not distorted in any way, unlike self-enhancement. So narcissistic self-enhancement went up with the MySpace people, but self-esteem went up with Facebook. So my lesson that I took from this is share, don't compare. In fact, I had a hashtag share, don't compare. Because if you passively scroll. Yeah. Or you're constantly churning your image, as I call it, image churning, profile picture, posting, you know, fancy images of yourself or everything, your glamorous vacation. It kind of seems based on the one empirical study done with a control group and experimental design that it increases narcissism to do those things. And it turns out that, you know, the more people do those things, the higher they score on narcissism, too. I should mention that when you look at those behaviors. Mm-hmm. People who do that tend to be more narcissistic. But if you're sharing authentically, if you're sharing even vulnerable moments with people over social media, select people. We don't want to mm-hmm. necessarily be doing it publicly, right? You can do it to a friend group. This is actually very healthy for us. And it's not going to depress us and it's not going to make us more narcissistic. Mm-hmm. Anything that increases our sense of authentic involvement and connection reduces narcissism and it increases our positive feelings about ourselves. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Malkin. We encourage you to read Dr. Malkin's book available on Amazon or visit his website at drcraigmalkin.com and see where you fall on the narcissism spectrum scale. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was fascinating. It was an entirely different perspective on narcissism than I have ever heard before. And this book, Self-Evaluation, is such a cool resource and could be an eye-opener to some walker. Absolutely. Anytime we have the opportunity to better understand the behavior of ourselves or others, I think it's a good thing. Mm -hmm. I learned just as much about echoists as I did narcissists from this conversation. I know, right? Undoubtedly, though, we will all at one point meet someone on one unhealthy end of the narcissistic spectrum or another. We sure will. So have you been involved in a narcissistic relationship before? Unfortunately, um, yes. Can you offer us some details as to how you handled your relationship with them? Well, I've had a few run-ins with narcissists, actually. One was a romantic relationship and another was a friendship. Hmm. But there were a few factors common to both. Like what? Well, they were very good at isolating me from other people, which made it really hard to see what was happening in the relationship with any kind of perspective. And also it made it harder to get out. So how are they able to do that? You're a pretty good read on people. Yeah, maybe, but it's a really insidious and slow change. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest issues is that they wear a mask for everybody else. They appear really friendly and charming and even generous. So others really like them, and then they can't understand why you might be having issues with them. I was even told by somebody that I was really lucky to be in that narcissistic romantic relationship. Wow. Yeah. But really, it's the gaslighting that makes you doubt and second guess yourself. You might get angry at them for something, say a lie you caught them in, and then somehow they turn it all around and suddenly you find yourself at fault and even apologizing, just like Ronya said. So ultimately, how did you extricate yourself from these relationships? Well, in the friendship, they just crossed a boundary that really opened my eyes. Right. It was very drastic though. And sadly, in my romantic relationship, I wrote it out until the bitter end and only realized that he was a narcissist after the fact. So what about you? Do you have any experiences that stand out? Well, I had an instructor who was a narcissist and they, I'm going to be careful not to identify this individual. Yeah, that's probably wise. Well, this individual is very abusive. Actually, they even had a reputation for being abusive. Oh, so it was well known. That's pretty bad. Yeah, they could be quite pleasant, but then they would become really manipulative. There mm. was a lot of back and forth. That's a bit of a roller coaster. It was. And at the time, I really felt there wasn't much I could do about it as they held a position of power. Mm -hmm. I do have some friends and family as well, who could be said to lean towards one end of the spectrum or the other, but they certainly aren't abusive. Okay, well, thank goodness for that. Having a narcissist or echoist family member would be so hard. It would. I've had bosses and colleagues too who are narcissists, but I think they'd be really shocked if someone pointed it out to them. They mm -hmm. honestly cannot see their narcissistic behavior. No, they can't. That's so true. And that's what makes it so hard to deal with these people. They can't self-reflect and they have no perspective on their toxic behavior. But not all narcissists are abusive and they aren't always braggers either. No, you're right. Understanding the spectrum is so helpful. I suspect that one relationship I spoke of involved more of a vulnerable or covert narcissist. Mm. They felt inferior, I think, which triggered some of their more nasty behavior. In fact, according to psychologist Dr. Lorna Slade, the covert narcissist is more dangerous than the grandiose type 
because they're harder to spot. And in her words, they're more shame-based. They are more easily triggered into what's known as narcissistic rage, which drives them to take spectacular revenge. Well, that sounds scary. Yeah, it does. And I'm really (laughs) glad that I'm well rid of that friendship now. A study co-authored by Anna Blasco-Beld of the University of Gerona in Spain involved looking at vulnerable narcissism and different noxious interpersonal behaviors. In the study, they tested the connection between this form of narcissism and ridicule and laughter. More than 400 undergrad students were asked to fill out a questionnaire to assess their own vulnerable narcissism, as well as their perspectives on situations which involved ridicule and laughter. So they looked at the fear of being laughed at or being the the object of mockery. Mm -hmm. They looked at feeling joy or reward when being laughed at and pleasure that they felt in exploiting or putting down others through mockery. And what did they find? Well, they discovered that those people who scored higher in terms of being vulnerable narcissists were more likely to be afraid of being laughed at, yet they were more likely to enjoy laughing at others. Really? Yep. Bullies. Uh Uh-huh. They were also more likely to use isolation and social withdrawal as methods to avoid interactions when they were feeling vulnerable, shameful, or inferior. This is so different from what we've been used to thinking about narcissism. Take Mm -hmm. those more extroverted narcissists. We used to call them confident and go-getters. These people were often overachievers and celebrated for not letting people stand in their way. But today, we have no problem singling out the extreme narcissist. Mm -hmm. It's really the vulnerable narcissists who are now under the radar. Instead, we tend to give them a pass, thinking they might just seem insecure and lacking confidence. You know, there's this tendency to feel more empathy for them and allow their behavior to go unchecked. Yeah, until they mock you or launch into a rage. (laughs) Right, until they (laughs) blow their cover. So we have to talk about the echoist. This is something I had never even considered before. But of course, we have all encountered these people as well. We sure have. We tend to think that the narcissist is the problem, but being an echoist is definitely a problem as well. Oh, for sure. And when a narcissist and an echoist pair up, they're both fulfilling a need for each other, but it's not healthy, Walker. It's interesting, Harris, that often we pin the narcissist title on the male and the victim is a female, but this is just not the case every time, is it? Certainly not. And it's kind of weird we do that. I came across an interesting article that discusses a paper by Rebecca Weidman. She and her colleagues studied narcissism data based on survey responses from over 250,000 people. She examined things like age and gender differences as it related to narcissism. Cool. And? Well, they discovered that men scored higher in antagonistic aspects of narcissism. Oh, so the data kind of supports the stereotype. (laughs) Well, apparently, yes, but the differences between the two genders are said to be small. Interesting. Now, I have a question for you. Okay, shoot. Do you think we tend to be more narcissistic when we're younger or older? I would think younger, but I know a few older folks too who could probably pass as a narcissist. So why do you think younger? Well, when we were younger, we were more into ourselves, right? You're right. Based on Dr. Weidman's research, yes, younger adults scored higher than middle-aged and older participants. But again, her research indicated that the differences weren't that pronounced. Wow, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. It's also important to note that narcissists don't always end up with mates who are emotionally dependent. Yeah, I've seen that play out personally and with friends too. In fact, strong women and narcissistic men also attract each other. Is it because strong women tend to like big personalities? Yeah, maybe. According to psychotherapist and life coach Sherry Gaba, the self-confidence that a narcissist exudes is attractive to women 
who are successful and confident in their own right. These women might see a narcissistic man as strong and capable. But what about a narcissistic man? Why might he be attracted to a strong woman? Well, Gabba says that narcissists may experience insecurity. They may have struggled with inconsistent parental figures, which in turn might encourage them to seek safety with a strong partner. Really? A bit of a mind bend thinking that the extroverted narcissist is insecure. I know, right? Psychoanalyst Maxine Mai Feng Chung actually said that the mask of the narcissistically wounded conceals profound sadness. It should be said, too, that if a narcissist gets involved with a strong woman, they might also consider that as a bit of a conquest. Ah, not surprising. Another trait often spoken of hand-in-hand with narcissism is gaslighting. Now, you've mentioned it today, Harris. Yeah, but it's a term which constantly pops up, right? So what exactly is gaslighting? Well, I hope my hubby is listening because he can't (laughs) seem to grasp this concept. But to put it simply, it's a technique employed by the narcissist that causes you to question your own feelings and reality. You can start thinking that you're going crazy. You don't have to be a narcissist to employ this technique, though, do you? No, I don't think so. But perhaps we're just more aware of this behavior now than we have been before. Okay, so where does the term come from? I've always wanted to know this. Okay, well, it actually comes from the title of a 1938 British stage play, The husband in the play dims the gaslights in their home in an attempt to drive his wife crazy and then denies to her face that the lights have been dimmed at all. Mm. This play later was developed into a 1944 American psychological thriller, Gaslight, starring Charles Boyer and Ingrid Bergman. Ah, mystery solved. Yeah. So have you heard the terms of baiting and hoovering? Baiting is basically trying to get someone all worked up. Am I right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The narcissist essentially provokes someone with the intent of getting an emotional reaction out of them. And it's a pretty common tactic. And hoovering, I'm not familiar with this one. Okay. So hoovering refers to the way a narcissist really draws a person back into the emotionally abusive relationship. And of course, there's love bombing. We actually talked a little bit about this in our discussion about catfishing with Dee Gibson last season. Love bombing is when someone showers another person with over-the-top compliments with the intent of gaining their trust. According to the Cleveland Clinic, it can also involve over-communicating their feelings, showering someone with gifts that they might not want, and, this is interesting, even involve premature and intense discussions about your future, like marriage, having a family, that kind of thing. Ding, 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 red flag. Oh, yeah, I say run. (laughs) Compliments as manipulation. Yep, the end goal is to manipulate the person into trusting in their relationship. It's really frightening. It really is. According to the Cleveland Clinic, love bombing is a form of psychological and emotional abuse. So knowing these red flags, why are narcissists so darn attractive in the first place? Like, how do we get sucked in? Oh, is it their confidence? It has to be confidence. People tend to be drawn towards people who are sure of themselves. Are you saying that you think confidence is sexy, Walker? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Am I alone in this? (laughs) No, not in my opinion. Psychotherapist Amanda Robbins actually says a relationship with a narcissist is akin to eating chocolate cake. But I like chocolate cake. I know, me too. (laughs) Okay, detail more. Well, she says it might be appealing in the short term, but over time, it's a very bad idea. (laughs) Yeah. She references narcissism researchers Brunel and Campbell, who stated that the narcissist partner has a positive initial experience and negative long-term experience with the negative long-term experience being significantly more negative than the narcissist's own experience. They also point out that the partner will see his or her outcomes become significantly more negative over time. This is the natural downward spiral of getting involved with the narcissist. 
So, you haven't explained why they're so appealing in the first place. Well, I'm getting to that, Walker. Uh, According to Brunel and Campbell, narcissists have a set of qualities, social confidence, likability, charm, that are optimal for relationship initiation. And they state that the more grandiose narcissists project an aura of sexy confidence with perhaps just a hint of arrogance, and so they draw an admiring crowd. Well, there you go. There you go. (laughs) But their personality traits such as low empathy, self-centeredness, and using others for esteem maintenance usually show through, which causes their relationships to be short-lived. No surprise there. Right. So this now begs the question, can you have your narcissistic cake and eat it too? I think I'll go for the pie instead. Thank you for joining us at At Home and Abroad with your host, Harrison Walker. If you enjoyed this episode, you would be a real gem if you would rate and review our show. It helps us grow and expand our reach. You can also subscribe to follow us each week as we continue the conversation. Find us on Instagram at at Harrison Walker or visit us at www.athomeandabroadpodcast.com. We have great merch, just saying. And of course, we would love to hear from you. And for you truly dedicated fans who have listened all the way through to the end of this episode, we offer exclusive interviews, outtakes, challenges, and more on our paid channel. Not even the cost of a latte once a month, depending on where you buy your coffee 